0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Sounded okay. <laughs> it won't be a next week for me, but hopefully you can do better. Um, we do have a baptism today at 2:30 in the NPR. Uh, if you were around and you want to come celebrate with, I think 10 or 12 people, all their names are in the bulletin of those who are being baptized. But I do want to encourage you to come out and uh, celebrate with them in their baptism in the NPR 2:30 today, uh, right across the plaza. Uh, we've been in a, a series called the Theology of Work. And uh, like I've mentioned before, it's really important as we think about the concept of work to think about the concept in light of its relationship to God. Everything is owing its existence to God. He is the author of reality, and therefore anything we experience ought to be understood in relationship to the author of reality. And therefore, the concept of work is important for us because we all do it, but it's also important for us that we have a robust theology of work because work is something God Does It's something God did. And because of that, we know that work is good. We know that work is beautiful. We know that work is joyous. It's uh, an essential element of what it means to be made in the image of God. And to have and develop this theology of work, we have to do so from a biblical worldview. And remember, we talked about the biblical story, creation, fall, redemption, recreation. It's like the greatest story ever told because it is the greatest story ever told. And so as we uh, come today uh, to look at um, just redemption and its relationship to work. We talked last week about Act 1 and creation and how that informs us of how we should view work in our relationship with work. But now this morning we're going to look at Acts 2, 3, and 4. So I know it took one whole sermon to do Act 1. I'm going to try to squeeze three acts into one message. So here it goes. But what we're going to do is we're going to really focus on the fall we focus on the fall's effect on work and how we uh, view work. We're going to look at redemption and uh, just what redemption has done and how it was accomplished. And then we'll look at the recreation aspect of what the new creation has in store for us and its impact on our view of work. So this morning, here's what we're going to focus on. Redemption corrects distorted views of work by emphasizing the resurrection as the inauguration of the new creation. I know that's a lot of words. Let me say it one more time. Redemption corrects a distorted view of work. How does it do that? By emphasizing the resurrection of Jesus, which is the inauguration of the new creation. Or to say it more plainly, when Jesus rose from the dead, the new creation came. And if we emphasize that as the accomplishment of redemption, the way in which we view work will be corrected because many of us have very distorted views of work. So that's where we're headed. So we'll be in Genesis chapter 3 and a whole bunch of other places. But we'll start in Genesis 3 and let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. God, thank you for your word. It is indeed a light into our path, but it is also nourishment for the soul. It gives direction, insight. You reveal yourself through it. God, you sustain us through it. You satisfy our hearts and our longings through it. And ultimately, we love reading it and thinking about it and singing it because it points to Jesus. And Jesus is our everything. So I pray this morning that you would give us eyes to see. God, that you would grant us a mind to just truly comprehend the impact. And God, that you would grant us a heart to believe what we have before us this morning. So I pray, God. That you would teach us, that you would sustain us, that you would meet with us, that you would satisfy us with nothing other than yourself. So God, be with us this morning, we pray, for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So remember, redemption corrects a distorted view of work by emphasizing the resurrection as the inauguration of the new creation. And where we're going to start is this, is the fall, act two. And we start in the garden And if you remember, God created everything, and it was good, and it was beautiful, and God did so joyously. And we're told that God created trees in which Adam and Eve could eat from, but not only just trees because of their utility, but also trees that are beautiful to look at. And then what we come across is a prohibition. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, where Adam and Eve are told that they are not allowed to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They just cannot do it. And if you're anything like me, whenever I think about when God prohibits things, I think he does so because the thing he prohibits is bad. But we have to remember that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden is good. And it is beautiful. And so God isn't telling Adam and Eve, don't eat of that tree because it is bad He's testing them. Will you eat of this tree in light of its goodness? Or will you trust me that I'm asking you to not enjoy something good because there is something behind it I wish to teach you? And ultimately, that is probably one of the questions all of us must ask on a daily basis. God may be withholding good from you simply because he wants you to ask yourself the question, do you trust him? Do you trust him? Do you trust me, God would say? And so we get to chapter 3, verse 6, and we see what happens. Eve is having a dialogue with the serpent, and finally she gets deceived to the point where she actually does this, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good, For food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. Remember that? Chapter 2, verse 9, same exact phrase. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit, and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now, they were told not to do this, not because the tree was bad, but simply because God wanted to test whether or not they would be ultimately satisfied with him and that they would ultimately trust him. And we see that they did not And this informs us on what sin is. This is very important because I hear a lot of people talking about sin as if sin is simply a bad decision. No. Sin can be a bad decision, but that is not fundamentally what sin is. Sin is not when you don't believe in yourself enough. Sin is not when you haven't tapped into your inner potential Sin isn't any of this kind of stuff, unlocking the inner strength within you or transforming the way you think and becoming all that you are and overcoming your giants and all this kind of stuff. Sin isn't not doing that stuff. Sin is fundamentally a rebellion against God. You don't obey him. But you don't just disobey. You take the good things that God has made, like the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and you say, this good thing is going to become my ultimate thing. And God, I desire your gifts rather than you as the giver. Sin is fundamentally making a good thing an ultimate thing and seeking to find ultimate satisfaction outside of the person of God. Everything that you and I do sin-wise is owing to that. We don't trust God that he will satisfy us. And therefore, we try to take it for ourselves and prove that this thing will indeed satisfy us. That's sin. That's rebellion. That's rebellion. Now, the result of this rebellion is sweeping. It's destructive. It's terrible. Remember the relationships we talked about that were embedded in creation? Relationship between God and human beings, the relationship of human beings to themselves, relationship between human beings and other human beings, and the relationship between human beings and nature? Watch the destructive effects of rebellion totally ransack and break all of those relationships. Chapter 3, verse 8. We'll start with the relationship between God and humanity. Remember, God deeply desires intimacy with his human beings who bear his image. And yet, this is what we see. And they, being Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. After sin and rebellion enters, do you see the breach of relationship? Do you see how the relationship is broken between God and humanity? Where at one point, humanity and God were just in perfect fellowship, hanging out, spending time together, frolicking through the garden. And yet now when God comes by, they hide. And that's exactly what we see in our culture everywhere. People are constantly hiding from God. We don't want God in my life. I don't want God to intrude. God is a brute and he is annoying and he wants to steal my joy. Relationship with God is broken because of rebellion. Second relationship, humanity's relationship with itself. We see this in chapter 3, verse 7. After the rebellion, the eyes of both, Adam and Eve, were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now the reason why this is evidence of a broken relationship with yourself is remember chapter 2, verse 25, that the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Before rebellion, they were not ashamed. No shame, no embarrassment, no guilt. And yet after rebellion, do you notice what happens? They are filled with shame. Guilt. But not only that, they're hiding themselves from one another and hiding themselves from God, and therefore they are hypocrites. And this results in our culture all over the place in basically two things. One, we are so filled with shame that we have a low view of self, and we're just like Eeyore. <laughs> you know what that is, right? Okay. Or we are so full of ourselves that we are narcissists. But you notice that it usually isn't in the middle. It's usually one or the other. Oh, I'm just terrible. No, you're not. Build your self-esteem. That's right, I am somebody. I'm amazing. (laughs) You're also a little narcissistic. (laughs) Oh, see, there I go again. Do you see what I'm saying? Because shame and, and guilt and sin and embarrassment results in pride and arrogance and it also results in seeing ourselves as we ought not to view ourselves. We have a low view of self or an overly high view of self. All that to say our relationship with ourselves is broken. Just broken. Thirdly, humanity's interpersonal relationships. Watch this. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? Game of hide and seek. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked. It's shame. And so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, ah, that woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And she said, oh, no, nah, the, the serpent saved me and I ate it. You see what happens? You did something wrong. No, it wasn't me. It was them. It wasn't me. It was you. How can you have a harmonious, peaceful relationship when that's how you're you're looking at each other? You're just pointing fingers and yelling at each other. But isn't that how we as human beings act? Something goes good, you point the finger where? In the mirror. (laughs) Things go bad, where do you point your finger? Out the window. (laughs) Therefore. And so humanity's interpersonal relationships are just messed up. And then humanity's relationship with nature, this has a tangible effect on how we view work. Look at this. God curses the serpent in verses 14 and 15, but he promises redemption in verse 15, but then he curses the woman in 16 and the man in 17 following. Look at this. To the woman, he says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. The need for epidurals right there. (laughs) Do you see it? Nature is all messed up now. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I command you, you shall not eat of it, four things happen. Number one, cursed is the ground because of you. Secondly, in pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Now remember this, God created Adam to do what? To work the ground. And now the very ground that he's supposed to work is cursed and filled with pain. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. Oh, man, now I got weeds? Fourthly, by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you see it? Even the relationship that humanity has to nature is all broken. And in fact, what this means for us is Since nature is the thing we use skillfully and joyfully to do work, nature being cursed with all of its pain, thorns and thistles and sweat of the face means that no matter your work, it is going to be difficult. No matter what it is. Stay-at-home parent, your life is difficult. Whether you are a blue-collar worker, your life is difficult. Or a white-collar worker, your life is difficult. Because rebellion in the garden has broken all the relationships that were embedded in creation. They are messed up. And you know it. We see this in the Bible, actually. In the book of Ecclesiastes. We see where the author actually hints at this and he begins to talk about this. What happens with the fall is it damages work to the point where we have a distorted view of work. In fact, when we think about work, we think about work being pointless. Why am I doing this? This is, this is dumb. Or it's, or it's completely fruitless. What, what is this accomplishing? Or we look at work from a lazy perspective. I don't want to do that. Or we look at it as a workaholic kind of thing where like work is everything. Those are conditions and results of the fall. Look at this in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4. Listen to what he did. He says, I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. And so I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure for my heart found pleasure that uh, in all my toil. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I expended in doing it and behold, It was vain. Striving after the wind, there was nothing to be gained. That sounds hopeful. But instead, you and I know that because we work our tails off. We're working, working. It's like, what do you have to show? I got this house. Okay, what else? I got a bunch of stuff. Cool. And then you start to realize this is it. This is what I'm spending my life on? Jet skis? And gas? And overpriced fruit? This doesn't make sense. And you just get frustrated. But not only that, you see the fruitlessness of it. Verse 18, he says, I hated my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool? Do you see the, the, the just total pointlessness of it? We work our tails off trying to accumulate a bunch of stuff, but then by the time we are at a place to enjoy it, we're too old and lazy to even do anything about it. And so we give it to our kids, and we're like, I hope you are doing a good job with this. And you don't know. You're not in control anymore, and then you're dead. (laughs) So when we think about work, you have to stop and just go. Sometimes we just look at it going, what are we doing here? Seriously, what is this? This is ridiculous. But not only do we find it pointless and fruitless, we also distort work by becoming workaholics or becoming lazy. And we see this all the time in our culture where people are claiming to be committed to their corporation or committed to their job. But what they're doing is they're making all of their decisions and all of their desires and all of their thoughts are because of or for work. We don't disciple our kids, because we're too busy working. We don't love our neighbor because we're too busy working. And doing all this stuff, all of our desire, i got to have this, i got to work more, just workaholic. What it is, is taking the good thing called work, and we're saying this good thing called work, I'm going to make it the ultimate thing. It's going to define me. So when people ask you, so who are you? Oh, I am a nurse. No, 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 no. Nurse does not define you. Nurse describes you. There's a difference. So, workaholism is a distortion of work where we take a good thing and make it an ultimate thing. And what have we seen in Genesis 3? What happens when you do that? You rebel against God. Therefore, you are a sinner. But not only that, we're lazy. Think about that. We, just, we try to avoid work at all costs. In America, we want everything <laughs> the fastest, the most efficient, provides the least resistance. We want to do whatever we can so we can have more time to do what? Who knows? Be on Facebook. (laughs) And so what we find is the pendulum swings back and forth. We show up lazy, but then we're like, no, i got to stop being lazy. This is, you know, like your New Year's resolution. You're like, no, I'm going to totally do this. And then you become a workaholic for like three months. And you're like, this is terrible. (laughs) And then you go back to being lazy. There is no middle ground where you're kind of lazy and kind of working really good, or you're like just like, yeah, this is really good. We're fallen beings. You're probably lazy a lot of times, and you're probably overworking a lot of times. <laughs> you know that. But remember, redemption corrects distorted views of work. How? By emphasizing the resurrection as the inauguration of the new creation. This is important for us. We must recognize that we have a distorted view of work. And we must do something about it. So let me ask you this question. What do we do about it? Work is messed up. You know it. What do we do about it? And I think the answer may shock you. Because the answer is nothing. Why? Because everything that is needed in order to rectify and correct and redeem work has already been done. Everything that is necessary for the correction of a distortion of work is already done. Redemption has been accomplished. Jesus did it. And so all that is needed to redeem and restore work, we don't have to do anything about it. We must simply reflect on the fact that God sent forth his son to redeem all things, including work. So what must be done about work? It must be redeemed in Jesus. And has it been? Yes. So that... We remember whatever was broken is being repaired. Whatever is evil is someday going to come untrue. Whatever is needed has been accomplished. And how has that been accomplished? By the simple fact that Jesus Christ died and not only that, he rose. And the reason why he rose is to inaugurate the new creation to remind us that it is not over. The fall has not ruined everything. Jesus has come. He's rescuing. He's redeeming. He's restoring. And he's doing so through his resurrection. That is incredible news. No wonder why it's called good news. Because it's news, not about what you must do, but about what God has done. It is finished, Jesus said, and he meant it. The resurrection is central to Christianity. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we're all still in our sins. I know that there's a lot of people out there who just value the cross, and I know it's important to value the cross. Believe me, I value the cross. But you must remember in Paul's mind and in Christian teaching, the cross is significant, but it is not everything. The resurrection must come, and if there is no resurrection, there is no forgiveness of sins. But we as Christians oftentimes forget about the resurrection and just wait till Easter to remember it. But every day is supposed to be lived in light of the resurrection. I am a new creation. So, what do we do? We remember the redemption, that Jesus rose from the dead and inaugurated the new creation. Remember, if you were to read the book of Acts and you asked yourself the question, what is the central theme of every single sermon preached in the book of Acts, do you know what the answer would be? Resurrection. It should be central to our lives. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 and 23, Paul talks about how Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. And what that means is he's the first of many more to come. We have this, like, paperclip bin in our office. And uh, one of the students, I don't know who it was, but if he's here today. But anyways, they they put all the paperclips together. like, Like 300 of them. And so what was funny is I pulled one out and it was like, oh, oh oh, and this just was so many. And then I started thinking about it. I could either get mad or I could use it as a sermon illustration. So I chose that. <laughs> but if you take the one paper clip and you pinch it in your fingers and you pull it up, if you only pull one paper clip, do you notice that all the rest of them come with it? And in that way, this is exactly what, what Paul said in Romans 6, that Jesus is the firstfruits. If we have united with him in a death like his, we will be united with him in a resurrection like his. We are like a paperclip that's just stuck on him, so when he goes, we go. That's awesome. And it should inform the way that we view our lives. And in fact, if you're a Christian here, you are called a new creation. When Jesus rose from the dead, Jesus inaugurated, He began the new creation. Second Corinthians 5:17 says that if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. Unfortunately, many people interpret that passage as kind of like a reset button. Like we tell people, "Hey, if you become a Christian, you get to start over." And I go, "That's lame. And the reason why it's lame is, think about it, you have to be in Christ in order to be a new creation. And if being a new creation is only resetting, then let me ask you this question, then what is Jesus? Did he reset? And if Jesus resets, what did he reset from? And since the fact is Jesus had no sin, he has no reason to reset, so why do we have to be in him to be reset? makes no sense. But instead, maybe it's this. Maybe when Jesus rose from the dead, it was the new creation. And so if you are in Christ through faith, you are transformed, not reset, but transformed into a whole new thing. That's mind-blowing, is it not? Kind of weird. But think about it. When James and John and Peter... We're traveling with Jesus up a mountain and he's transfigured himself. Remember that? He began to glow and he's sitting there, and Moses on one side and Elijah's on the other. Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. Remember what Jesus said? All the law and the prophets point to me. In that moment, Jesus says, Whoa! And he changes, transfigures himself, and the guys are sitting there going, This is awesome. And he goes, Yes, this is a foretaste of what's coming. This is what it means to have new creation, and you're going to get it. And so if anyone has faith in the gospel, they are a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. It isn't a reset button. It is a complete transformation. And we do not pursue obedience in order to become a new creation. We pursue obedience because we are a new creation. It's different. I love what C.S. Lewis says in his book, Miracles, He says Christ's achievement in rising from the dead was the first event of its kind in the whole history of the universe. He's the first fruits, the pioneer of life. He has forced open a door that has been locked since the death of the first man. He has met, he has fought, and he has beaten the king of death. And everything is different because he has done so. This is the beginning of the new creation. A new chapter in cosmic history has been opened when Jesus rose from the dead. It's new. This is incredible. Many people, therefore, will say that's incredible and almost too good to believe. And in fact, it doesn't even quite make sense because I'm supposedly this brand new thing, but I'm still me. Look at me. I'm getting hairy and old and saggy and all. Just how am I new? You have to remember the newness is that though your outer self is wasting away your new self your inward self is being made strong this isn't a dichotomy what it is is the inward preparation for a new creation that that is coming here's the reality what you do in this life matters and in some way whatever it is you do in the old creation with your old body and the old self is somehow contributing or involved in the new creation let me show you in revelation 21 verse 22 it says and i saw no temple in the city for its temple is the lord god the almighty and the lamb and the city has no need for sun or moon to shine on it for the glory of god gives its light and its lamp is the lamb and by the lamb who is jesus by jesus's light will the nations walk and here it is And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. In some way, shape, or form, there is overlap in such a way that the kings of the earth are going to bring the work that they did on earth into the new creation. I have no idea what that is or how that is. But I just know the simple fact that the old creation and new creation has continuity. There's an overflow there. And if we continue on, verse 25, And its gates will never be shut by day. There will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and the honor of the nations. From every nation, they will bring whatever is glorious and honorable into the new creation. Which leads me to believe what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. That, whatever those things are done, that you do for the glory of God, in some way, shape, or form, those glorious things are going to be brought with you into the new creation. Which tells us this the old creation matters. What you do with your life matters. What you do today is going to matter for the new creation. What you do tomorrow, what you do at work, matters. Because, in some way, shape, or form, they overlap. I love what N.T. Wright says. He wrote this book, which has revolutionized the way that I see the new creation. It's a book called Surprised by Hope, Rethinking Heaven, the Resurrection, the Mission of the Church. He says, the created order, the old creation, in which God has begun to redeem in the resurrection of Jesus is a world in which heaven and earth are designed not to be separated, but to come together. And in that coming together, the very good that God spoke over creation at the very beginning will be enhanced not abolished. Because many of us think this old creation is about to get burned up, annihilated. We're done with it. No. That has detrimental effects if we believe that. As Pastor Tom Nelson writes in his book, Work Matters, connecting these ideas together with the concept of work, he says this, if we believe that the earth, everything about it, everything we do on it, is simply going to one day be abolished and disappear, then the logical conclusion is that our work in this world is virtually meaningless. If our daily work, but if our daily work, done for the glory of God and for the common good of others, in some way carries over to the new heavens and new earth, then our present work itself is overflowing with immeasurable value and eternal significance. Think about that. If your work in this world takes the natural resources and creatively does something with it for the good of your neighbor, but all of that stuff you do and all your skill and all your passion, all the things you create is simply going to be burned up and it's irrelevant, then your life of work is meaningless. That's not good news. There's no hope in that. But as Revelation 21 says, if in fact the old creation somehow carries over into the new creation, then what you do with the natural world, which God said is good, and what you creatively do and joyfully do and beautifully do for the good of your neighbor and for the glory of God will carry over and therefore it has eternal significance. Do you want to make your life count for eternity? Then the answer would be, if you do, Have a proper theology of work which understands that what you do matters. How does it matter? And this is where we get into the redemption of work. How we come to know our work is eternal in significance and has immeasurable value and it matters to God. What we do about this is we should utilize common grace for the common good. If we are to redeem work, We have to take God's common grace and use it for the common good. Now, common grace is a theological term, and we don't hear much about it. But it basically means this. It means the natural or common things that God gives us to sustain life. Sunshine, rain, oxygen, gravity. That's a good thing. And we take these natural things, and God uses them and other people to sustain life. It's just called common grace. It's the grace that God gives for everyone, regardless of where, what their standing is with him. And here's where I think the overlap from the old creation to the new creation comes. It's when we take these common things and we do them for the glory of God, but we do them for the good of our neighbor. In Isaiah 55, verse 10, it's a verse that... Uh, really spoke to me a couple years ago. My wife Heather and I were in Minneapolis for a Desiring God conference, and one of the guys mentioned it, and I sat there just going, man, this is incredible. And I longed for the day to be able to preach on it, but now I just get to mention it. But it says this, for as the rain and the snow came down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, and then verse 11 continues on, so too the word of God goes out, it does not return void. So, what Isaiah is doing, he's saying, look, the word of God does a spiritual thing. It doesn't return void, but at the same time, the word of God is doing a natural thing in verse 10. Look at what it's doing. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, it doesn't return, but it waters the earth. And it makes it the earth bring forth and sprout and give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. In God's mind, he provides rain and you get bread. How does that happen? Last time it rained here and Brent went in Brentwood and Antioch, I drove around and I see you. I wasn't running over loaves of bread. There has to be something that happens between those stages. And just think about that. A farmer takes dirt and he cultivates it, plants a seed, covers it, waters it, weeds. And then it sprouts and comes forth and has grain or wheat or whatever. And then you have a reaper come by and take uh, the kernels of wheat. And then you have somebody pounding that, making flour. You add some water and now you have dough and the baker who's relying on all these people's works, take that lump of dough and puts it in the oven and bakes sourdough. Praise God. Love sourdough. (laughs) And then the sourdough has to be packaged, and so it's put into a packaging thing that somebody has to do, and it's put on a truck, and the truck has to be driven by somebody to the store, and somebody has to be there to receive the inventory and then put it on the shelves, and somebody has to check you out at the grocery store. Long story short, you go home with bread, give a sandwich to your kids. Their bellies are full because of a truck driver. Or because of the clerk at the store, or because of the farmer, any other person you want to choose in that whole mechanism. Whether you are a farmer, or a reaper, or a baker, or a distributor, or a truck driver, or a cashier, you are in some way, shape, or form feeding people. Think about that. You are providing for the common good of your neighbor. If you decided as a truck driver to just wreck every delivery, people are going to starve. Think about that. We may scoff and mock this. Probably like, this guy has lost it. Get him off the stage. But I want you to think about this. How much of what we benefit from and how much of what we are blessed by is a product of somebody else's labor, not yours? And who has provided that? Ultimately, God has. I love what Jesus says in Matthew 5, talking about the common good. He says, You have heard it that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? Or in other other words, Jesus is saying, look, God is providing sun and rain. And I want you to take these common grace principles, and I want you to look at your neighbor, and I want you to love them by serving them for their good. So, in some way, you can, in your work, whether you're a doctor, stay home parent, or whether you're doing blue collar labor, you are, in some way, shape, or form, providing for the necessities and for the benefit and for the sustenance of people in our culture. In some way, shape, or form, you are loving your neighbor and serving them through your work. That's incredible. People often ask, how can I use my work for the kingdom? Work as a good worker. I love what Dorothy Sayers says in one of her essays. I didn't put this in my notes. so I have to memorize it. Here we go. All right, do the best I can. What she says is most of the time the churches what they do when they want to help a carpenter learn how to uh, do carpentry in light of the gospel. They'll tell him, well, show up on time and work hard and make sure when you have the weekends that you don't do any sinning. And what she goes on to say is, no, what we actually should be telling the carpenter is your religion or the gospel should compel you to make good, sturdy, beautiful tables. Because families are going to sit around the table. I'm thinking, that's amazing. That's absolutely stunning. The way Martin, or excuse me, Tim Keller, what he does is he summarizes this whole idea by saying this, God's loving care comes to us largely through the labor of others. Work is a major instrument of God's providence. It is how God sustains the human world. Whereas as Martin Luther says it, God milks the cows through the milkmaids. Or the way that I would say it is this, God paves the streets through the city works department. God heals the sick through nurses and doctors. God provides food through farmers and bakers and merchants. God provides for your retirement through financial planners. God enables you to appreciate his creation through teachers and scientists. He shows you the beauty of his created world through the artists. God provides furniture through the craftsmen. God provides clean drinking water through the city. God provides justice through lawyers and judges and law enforcement. God is constantly providing for our needs through common good. Think about that. That is incredible. What God is accomplishing through your everyday, seemingly mundane work life. God is doing extraordinary things through you. Remember, we started by talking about how there's relationships embedded in creation. Humanity to itself and God and other people and nature. How does this work for work? How does this flesh out? In relationship towards God, we are oriented towards God to do everything for his glory, but because of the fall, we don't work for God's glory anymore. We work for whose glory? Ours. But in redemption, God restores and enables and empowers us to now work for his glory. It's what Romans 8 talks about. If you're not in Christ, you cannot please God. The relationship with ourselves, because of the fall, we are oftentimes lazy or workaholics, or we see work as pointless and fruitless. But because of redemption, we now see that God is using us to love our neighbor and serve them for the common good and for his glory, and therefore we can take great pride in what we do, but also be humble that ultimately it's God who's doing it. Our relationship to other people. In the workplace, we gossip and slander and ridicule and slight, and dominate, and hate people. But through redemption, we come to understand that God is restoring and writing all of these relationships and so we can serve and love others even when they don't deserve it, because that's what Jesus did and the relationship to the natural world. Oftentimes in our working life, we try to cut corners. We try to do things that are easy or simple. We try to get away with stuff. But God reminds us in redemption that we need not do those things, but instead we're to do all for his glory and to do so skillfully and joyfully. I love what uh, this book called Helping Hurts has to say. When Helping Hurts. It's a book that we as a church utilize quite often in a lot of our ministries. And uh, the COC uses it. The Global Outreach Department uses it. Student Ministries uses it. Young Adult Ministry uses it. It's a book just to help us understand the implications of the gospel when it comes to serving the poor and the marginalized. And I encourage you all to read it. And in that book, the author spent a couple chapters talking about all the things that I've been preaching about the last couple weeks, about these relationships and about the biblical worldview. And they write this. God is inherently a relational being, existing as three in one from all eternity. Being made in God's image, human beings are inherently relational as well. Before the fall, God established these four foundational relationships for each person. They are the building blocks for all of life. When they are functioning properly, humans experience the fullness of life that God intended because we are being what God intended us to be. So you and I should pursue how God is redeeming those relationships. And in light of what God has done in the resurrection, we come to understand that God is redeeming all things through Jesus. Remember in Genesis 1 through 3, we started in a garden and paradise was lost. But in the resurrection, paradise is regained. And we close in Revelation 21 and 22, and where does it take place? In a garden now when the garden was redeemed do you remember where jesus was when he was wrestling with god and he was sweating drops of blood in a garden because jesus was undoing what the curse had done the curse happened in the garden jesus is undoing that by going to a garden and being faithful and in the end when all is said and done we inherit a garden the new creation The new creation where there's no more pain, no more death, no more tears, no more cursing. Why? Because God is there. And God, as Psalms 16, 10, and 11 says, which is a a psalm about the resurrection, that Jesus, being the servant and son of God, would not see decay and his body would not spoil. That in verse 11, God makes known to you the paths of life, and in his presence is the fullness of joy, and at his right hand stands pleasures forevermore. Who is it that stands at the right hand of the Father? Jesus, who is our pleasure forevermore. The reason the new new creation is what it is is because Jesus is there, because Jesus is the inauguration of a new creation. And so we can correct our distorted view of work if we will focus on the resurrection of Jesus, which is the inauguration of the new creation. And he's promised, I'm coming back. I'm going to finish what I started. So, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for his resurrection. God, thank you for the new creation. God, thank you for all that has been accomplished on our behalf by him. Lord, in our working life, I pray that you help us to see how we can be empowered by the gospel to see that we can serve our neighbor, we can love them by simply working skillfully and diligently to create beautiful, sustainable things for their good and for your glory. God, there's a lot to unpack in this, and I pray, God, that you would help conversations around the dinner table between family members, and I pray that conversations happen on car rides and people would ransack the scriptures in search of how to live this out. I pray, God, that you would do a work in this church and help us to be salt and light in this community, And it begins with what we do nine to five, five days a week. Our work matters. Help us to see that now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.